Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Conflicts the Podcast, the podcast where we speak to technicians working in the film industry today, all over Canada, but of course predominantly in North Ontario, when we can find them, available to chat with us. Today we're going to be speaking to none other than the legend himself, Dennis Austin. Now, for a lot of you, that name is not going to roll off the tip of your tongue. You're not going to know who that is. But for anyone who has been through our film program, anyone who has ever met this gentleman, you know him, you can't forget him. Dennis Austin was the coordinator of our program for, well, for quite a long time, including the two years where I was a student here from 2005 to 2007. He was also one of my professors um, at the time, and we were able to collaborate on a few little fun projects. It's been an incredible journey uh, in my life, having someone like Dennis by my side. And I'm sure every other graduate of this program can say the same thing. And so uh, for all of us that know him, and uh, if you don't, uh, stick around because he's an amazing fellow and his, uh, his story and his journey is absolutely incredible. So without further ado, episode eight, Dennis Austin. Thank you so much, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Conflicts, the podcast. Here we are. I don't know what episode this is, but it's a dang good one, and I'm glad you're here. We're going to take a little bit of a different approach today. Today, we're going to be talking about someone who uh, has had a long period of life in the outside there doing all kinds of wild stuff, but ended up here at Conflicts uh, Confederation College and ended up staying here and coordinating the program for a lengthy amount of time. And so we're going to be talking to none other than Dennis Austin. Thank you, Dennis, for being here today. Hey, thank you for having me over. I appreciate it. This is awesome. I guarantee you there's people online right now listening. They're like, oh, Dennis's voice. I'm so glad to hear it. Just for those at home, Dennis uh, was the coordinator of the program when I was here, uh, 2005 to 2007. um, And I was lucky enough to have uh, Dennis as a professor, um, only for two classes. But, you know, two is better than nothing. Uh, and so, um, yeah, we're here today and, um, I just, I don't even know where to begin. I'm a little emotionally overwhelmed. I'm just really happy you're here. So it's going to be a little bit more free flow than maybe some of the other ones, but I typically start, uh, with one question and that was, um, are you a film nerd? Uh, film nerd. I think, I think a film nerd is somebody who's seen a film that really touched you somehow. Yeah. But nobody else knows about it, and you have to tell everybody. I think that makes you a film nerd. So there are a couple of films like that, uh, and I'll give you an example. For me, one of the one of the films that makes me a film nerd is The Black Stallion for a number of reasons. Uh, Caleb Duchanel shot it, and I believe it was his first or second film. If you look at that film, even today, it's like, how on earth did somebody shoot something so gorgeous in so many different locations? And it was also all the urban stuff was filmed in Toronto at a time when I was working in Toronto. Um, and I got a job. I, I was hoping to get a job on that. I didn't know any, like, I didn't know it was going to be a great film. I just knew there was that film. And the other film that was sort of working at the same time was um, Meatballs. Mm-hmm. And so I, so anyway, I got a job on Meatballs. <laughs> and, uh, and it was just basically unloading a truck from White's. White's used to be along the lakeshore. And anyway, That's unloading right. some trucks. But I always regretted that I didn't get one minute on the Black Stallion, because I think, for me, if I made a list of my favorite five films, Black Stallion is one. That's awesome. It would, would, what would be your all-time favorite film, if you even have one? It might be Badlands. I, oh, I really respect that answer. Yeah. That's an incredible film. Um, and, and again, first-time shooter, and I don't know what he did after or if he did much after. Apparently, it was a horrible shoot in terms of 
people getting along, and there were some fistfights on the set. There was all kinds of problems. And a first-time director. That was Terrence Malick's first film. Correct. Yeah. And he was maybe not the easiest guy to work with. Yeah. But the performances, so just the stuff that you that I would love about a film. One is I love the music that goes in that movie. It just suits it. Then he got two performances from Sissy Spacek and... Um, Martin Sheen. Martin Sheen. Which, and they were both completely inexperienced, especially uh, Sissy Spacek. Mm-hmm. Um, he had done one or two little things previously. But the performances he got were just, it was just immaculate. And the writing was just so superb. It was so spare, but the writing matched the landscape, yeah. you know, um, that spare landscape, treeless landscape, the dialogue without affectation or, or ornament. Um, but yet, and then it was enigmatic. It's like, everybody goes, well, what did that film mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, I have no idea. I finally tracked down an article that uh, the director had written, Malik had written, and he said he was interested in exploring the banality of evil. It's like, wow, how would you think of that? Yeah. Like to start off as your opening premise. Yeah. I wanted to explore the banality of evil. Although that might be a retrospective perspective, where maybe he didn't realize that's what it was until afterwards. It, it, it could have been that that film was 100 times better than he even intended it to be. Yeah. It is a masterpiece. And it, I had seen uh, another film called True Romance. Before that, I had seen that when I was a teenager. And just worshipped that movie. And then it wasn't until I was in my mid-20s when I first saw Badlands. And it completely floored me. I'm like, oh, okay, so Badlands was like the blueprint of true romance. And in so many ways, directly, I don't want to say ripping off, but like it's an homage. It's a direct homage from that film. And so 20 years later, able to rediscover that film and just as effectively captivate an audience. There's another film that I really like, and it's called The Hired Hand, directed by Peter Fonda. And this was a $1.98 film um, made by a bunch of guys that just went off on their own mm-hmm. and made this film. It did a, this original soundtrack for the music, uh, which again was very spare and, and big big open spaces where there's no dialogue, just this kind of moment. And then there's this doom hanging over it because you know something is hanging around. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love that film because that looked like a film that people could actually make. You look at something like the Marvel films, I don't know how they make those right. or, or how they think their way through those. I did talk to Trent Oplack when he was doing one of them, and he said he had a crew of 160 people on some days. Maybe it was Elysium. Wow. That he had a couple of days, we had 160 people. Like, I don't know how he did that. Yeah. I'm. <laughs> but whereas the higher hand, you could look at it and think, oh, I could see yeah. working on that. Mm-hmm. Then, then one more that I really liked because I think it changed the world was The Fast Runner. Oh, Yes. Because that was shot on video, and they said, oh, well, da-da-da-da-da, but they found they could translate it or transfer it to film and make it look spectacular. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was two guys that had this vision, and they stuck with it. It took them years. They sacrificed a lot of effort and time and all of that, but they made something that will endure forever. So like, yeah. you can still look at that film and go, dang, yeah. that's just beautiful. We talked about that last semester, actually, in our History of Film class. It is. It's an exceptional film. Yeah. So I would say those are the list of, but often it's it's the films where you can see the thumbprint of the filmmakers ah, in it and on it. I'm so glad you said that. Some of the, the sort of new technology too is like you can shoot something that the exposure, like somehow the cameras record like three different exposures of the same shot. So <laughs> right. somehow you can figure out. And then there's even, I've seen a test of this. I don't know if, there's, if they're doing this today or not, but 
there's like about four focus planes in every shot so that they can adjust the focus in post because there's about four layers of where the, the what you would call the uh, plane of critical focus. Yes, right, got you. I mean, yeah. There's about four planes of critical focus. Wow. In the old days, there was a, like if you were in the film department or, or the camera department, sorry, camera department, you had to be aware of all of these things and know if it didn't work. And mm-hmm. um, that's why they had to treat you so well because – not everybody could do that. Every, like even even the touch of somebody's doing a follow focus. Yeah. The difference between somebody who was really good at it mm-hmm. and somebody who had a hard touch. Yeah. You could tell the touch of the camera assist. Totally. You know. Now it's like, yeah, you shoot 8K and you can refocus, you can resize the shot, and you yeah. got various planes of critical focus and multiple exposures of the same shot. Mm-hmm. So now you that all lends into um, what they would call shooting down the middle, which means just sort of get it. And, and we'll sort it out in post. So ages ago, well, like when I started, if you had a um, a movie of the week, you would typically have like 24 days. Mm-hmm. Now, the last I talked to somebody who was working on a movie of the week, it was 12 days. Yeah. So it's half the time and everything is shifted to post because it's so much cheaper to spend a lot of effort in post where there's one or two people working on it and a computer as opposed to 30 or 50 people on set and and everything that that entails. Right. So it's just it's just so much more economical. Yeah. But that shift from the production side to the post-production side is like a major shift from when I began to in fact, we were derisive of people who worked in post. We just called them cutters. Right. You're just a cutter. You yeah. know, it's like you you've got the script and we don't even know who you are. You just conform conform the film yeah. to what we're giving you. And of course that was completely wrong. Yeah. But it was but it's how we thought. How you thought. Yeah. <laughs> At least you're being honest about it. Yeah, no, it's two separate worlds, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the focus much more in post. And and the, I think that's reflected in the film program here. Mm-hmm. And I, I would give credit to Eric for that. Yeah. Is as time went on, we had to increase the amount of effort and time that was put in uh, exposing students to the, all the stuff in post, including music, uh, effects, all of those things. Yeah. Um, we got away from film you were still shooting film, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So Thank I don't know, God. Some, some years after that. Yeah, it was great to have that experience. Yeah. But that wasn't reflective of how the world is now. No, not, not even then, to be honest. I mean, we were, as far as I remember, you would know better than me, we were the only school using film at that point. Because I remember uh, just how jealous everyone was when I was working at William F. White the following year and just talking to other film students who went to wherever they went to. I'm not disparaging them. They're great schools, but we were still using film. I got to have that experience, you know, for all of my films. And so the big benefit that I'm trying to instill in all of my students now is film philosophy, film technique in a digital world. Still treat it like film because that process is sound, you know, and it's, it's proven itself for over 100 years. So just because things have gotten easier doesn't mean we should lax on the procedure. Which is why I th- one of the things I like about the program that's maintained that sort of traditional kind of approach. Yeah. And, and in fact, even in the name, like I would always encourage this to be the film production program. Mm-hmm. Not anywhere near film. Yeah. But this is film production. I couldn't agree more. Um, Absolutely. I think that one of the differences too years ago, like when, what was the alternative to shooting film if you wanted, you know, a good image? I mean, it was all interlaced or, uh, yeah, interlaced. How many lines of resolution was it? Five, four, four eighty, yeah, four eighty, yeah, but split in half. Split in half. That's right. So it was like two. (laughs) 
yeah. 280 or something, whatever it was. Um, it just, that wasn't very good, and it didn't hold up because um, it wasn't digital, and, and the more generations that, that that image would get put through, the worse, the more it would fall apart. And so if you look at something shot with a, an analog camera from the old days, uh, one of the guys I'd mentioned that, you know, I kind of grew up in the film business with one of my closest friends and that I'd done so much work with up north and all over the place. Um, we had worked on a thing and he got, he found a copy of it years later and came over when I was actually teaching at the college to, to screen this thing. And so we sat down and it was great. We had something to eat and we sat down to watch it. It was on a VHS mm-hmm. and it was just ungodly. <laughs> it was like, we, we actually, as fondly as we remembered those days and all that, it was unwatchable yeah. because um, the image just fell apart so much and the sound was awful and the resolution was awful. The colors, they would call us, that's why you had to do these time-based corrections because it was red, green, and blue, like three images layered over top of a black and white image. So keeping them all lined up was virtually impossible. Mm-hmm. So suddenly there'd be a, this, this red shadow of the person outside of the person because <laughs> the red was so out of time. Oh, the, dear. the time base was so bad. So I think that's a thing that I, I love now is what you can do in post compared to like a linear edit system, you know, a tape-to-tape kind of edit system mm-hmm. with e- even inexpensive editing software. Yeah. It's like people, if you told people like in those days, oh, you're going to have an edit system that costs almost nothing, and you can do time, or you can, there's no time-based errors in it, whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be high res, and it's going to maintain, it's going to be HD front to back, yeah. or better. Yeah. And you can do any number of soundtracks, because you couldn't with the old linear system, it was just... And the cameras, I mean, we've talked about this before, but I hadn't had a camera for a while, so I just wanted to get one. So I got um, a Panasonic 180. Mm-hmm. The AGX 180? Correct. Yep. So it's like 4K... Not a perfect 4K, but 4K and USD, uh, and it can do slow motion, stop motion. It can do infrared and a hundred other things. Mm-hmm. And the audio is way better than anything that was in the film industry ever, right? Because uh, it's it's you know just the audio is spectacular on that. Mm-hmm. And then you can edit even on s- software that they give you for free. I'm using iMovie, and it's sort of fantastic. Yeah, da- you know, uh, DaVinci is free. Da Vinci is free. And it's amazing for what you get. Like it's when we first went to Toronto, this would be back, oh God, I can't even remember when, but it was in the old toy box mm-hmm. days. And they got one of the first Da Vinci setups, and they, and, but there was nobody in Canada that could run it. Mm-hmm. So they had to get a guy from, from uh, England and bring him over, get him all set up, get him a place to live, all of that. And paid him like a fortune. Yeah, I bet. Because he was the only guy, because it was so complicated to use. Wow. And it was so... Now we would say it's like it's one fiftieth of what the free version of DaVinci can of do. Of course. And later in a sound place, and I can't remember what it was a British soundboard that they used to use for mixing, you know, documentaries and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know, like forty eight channels. Um, you would need a transport truck to, to take it. They wanted to know if we wanted it. And there was a time that would have been a thirty five thousand dollar yeah that's when a house would cost you sixty thousand bucks, but mm-hmm. you know it was like half the price of a house, but you just look at it and think, well, then I'd have to get a room to keep this thing, and then how would you ever teach it? It's like how would you ever teach the da Vinci thing when there's twenty manuals that come with it because you got to write program to get it to do something yeah, no exactly so so all that stuff was 
you know, stuff that you'd lusted over when it was hot and then you couldn't wait to not have it. <laughs> yeah. And we're seeing that a lot now with a lot of older tungsten lights um, that maybe have rare bulbs and great fixtures. But if it's a 220 yeah. volt or if it's like a weird wattage that kind of sits just above where we want, like a 2500, you know, they're just gone. There's, there's just, a lot there's of painful no stuff about tungstens like one of the things if if your if your eyes are green or blue and you've worked around tungsten lights and also maybe worked in the arctic because i did that mm-hmm. is you're going to get cataracts guaranteed oh well that's nice to know guaranteed <laughs> i wish i'd known that earlier guaranteed there's so much ultraviolet uh spill coming off a tungsten light so uh well let's let's go on the way back machine a little bit let's let's go to young dennis all right <laughs> so the dennis that didn't know that he wanted to work in film at what age did you know you wanted to work in this industry? Um, I was 25 and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Um, I had worked in theater and I'd gone to a clowns or to mime school at Niagara-on-the-Lake and worked in theater in St. Andrews by the Sea in New Brunswick. I'd worked there and I'd worked all over um, Vancouver and in Victoria. Mm -hmm. But then I started to think, well, I'm not sure that theater is for me because I was starting to work with people that were so much more talented than me and I realized I'll never be as good so as soon as I thought, I'll never be as good as these guys, then I lost interest in it. Gotcha. As long as you think I can get better, I can learn something new, I can develop my what I know, then it's, it's great. But as, as soon as you go, oh, I'll never be half as good as these guys because they've got some better gift than I have, then I would lose interest. That happened with, if you're a musician too. You know, I would sit down and play, with, play some music with somebody and just go, wow, you know, I don't want to play anymore. <laughs> I remember having that feeling once uh, after I saw a movie called Lady Vengeance. I saw it with Mark Hassler. Remember Mark? Mm-hmm. Great, so, great bass guitar player. He was a great uh, bass guitar player. So Mark was in second year and I was in first year. And we were both really into, into Korean film. And we watched Lady Vengeance. And when it was over, I was super depressed. And I was like, I think I just realized I'm not meant to be a director. Like It was like, I can't do what this just did. Yeah, you know when I mean? you see a limit to your environment, you don't feel quite the same. But the the big thing was the other thing I, I had always been sort of interested in the ocean, and I thought I'd I'd like to be the guy I'd like to be a whale scientist and go out on boats, mm-hmm. um, and live on you know and pull in and, and catch gooey ducks and rock cod and eat on, make a shore lunch and and then go and count whales or something. So I looked into it at UBC. <laughs> okay, yeah, why not? And so. Because they had some oceanography undergraduate stuff. Uh-huh. But it was all statistics, okay. math, yep. sciences. And I went, oh, I, don't, I, couldn't, get, I couldn't get myself through that. <laughs> so, mean, it makes so sense, I was, though, I was right? sort of disappointed. It's like, oh, such interesting work. Yeah. But blocked, not available to me because I don't, I'm, not that kind of, I'm not that good of a student. Yeah. Especially for statistics and math and all that stuff. But then later... When I thought uh, I had worked um, at this place called St. Andrews by the Sea, and I worked with some young actors out of uh, New York, and I'm working with them, and I thought, God, these guys are good. Mm-hmm. Just and I, and that was the, the the summer. I thought, oh, their gift is so much better. You know, they've got so much more upside, so much more potential. So then I kind of lost interest in it, and then it was you know, and I and I was disappointed. Well, I can't be the whale guy, and then it just dawned on me. I can be the guy that makes the films about whale. Yeah. Then they need me. Or or working with actors on a film. And then it just kind of opened up. It was like, well, I can be the guy that makes the documentaries or the 
educational films or the ethnographic films or whatever about anywhere and everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always kind of like photography. I did a little bit of photography. I was always kind of fascinated by that. And so when I went to study film at school, it just, I went, yeah, this opens up the entire world because you can be the guy that makes the films about Pick any subject. You want, you're want. you interested in being a fireman, but you don't want to go through all that stuff. Mm-hmm. You can be the guy that makes their films for them. Yep. Or, well, just anything that you yeah, can imagine. Absolutely. Um, I did a bunch of work projects with the uh, Royal Ontario Museum. Mm-hmm. The process of being an anthropologist is like there's about 500 graduates per year for maybe one job. Right. It's a tough field. It's really wow. tough because there's... There's not that many opportunities. I guess that makes sense, and that's something people don't really think about. Or um, archaeologists is mm-hmm. even more so. Of guys that actually dig for profit yeah. are not very many. <laughs> but you can be the guy that makes the films about it. Yeah. And so that just that suited me to it. And then it was going off on these adventures because I wasn't built to work in the studio all the time. Mm-hmm. I needed to get out and about and go different places and do different things. Yeah. Meet some new Scratch people. Scratch that itch. Yeah. Uh, always kind of liked wandering. Yeah. Um, but film is like perfect for all of that. So you can be a technical guy and, and combine some work in the studio, some some of that stuff, and go traveling and go, you know. Yeah. And so the surprise was when I had gotten a call that there was a uh, Don DeLorme who was teaching here. He was going to take a year off. And they got my name from that guy I had mentioned. Mm-hmm. His name was Mel because they'd approached him about doing it because he had met some of the guys in Thunder Bay here. And he said he didn't want to do it, but he knew a guy, so that guy was me. Mm-hmm. So they called me up and offered a job, and I kind of thought, oh, well, it'll be a doddle. It'll be, you know, kind of boring, but, you know, it'll be nice to stay put for a couple of months, and, um, and I always liked Thunder Bay. Um, Where are you from originally? A little town in southern Ontario, a little farming community. Now, it's, it's called Palgrave, which in those days was like way outside of Toronto. We would go to Toronto maybe once every two years. Um, town of 120 people, and it was sort of a ghost town because it was a big town in the 1800s, and so there was stuff to play around with. What would be the nearest city from there? If you've heard of Orangeville. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's same kind of country as Orangeville. Gotcha. If you see Orangeville now, it was that was it was nothing like that in the fifties and sixties. It's quite busy now. Oh, you, the traffic and everything is awful. My my in laws uh, used to live in Hanover, which is about another hour past, just past a Neustadt. But that's where I grew up. Um, there was a Queens Hotel. I lived there till I was six or seven, and then I did lots of moving around, sort of uh, some upheaval, family upheavals. Yeah. Um, so I guess I moved. I added this up one time. I had moved 11 times by the time I finished high school. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, sometimes back to Palgrave, but, but yeah. 11 moves. And so, so you had been to Thunder Bay before? When I was, I was living, um, Timmins became, there was a, a documentary. I was working and living in Toronto. Um, there was a documentary, and they were hiring some people to work on this documentary. And I, I, it surprised me, but I was one of the only people that actually contacted them because nobody wanted to leave Toronto. It was kind of like, if you're not in Toronto, you're as good as dead. Right. Yeah. That attitude was very... But there was this, like... Hasn't changed much. I could be a third <laughs> camera assistant in Toronto for, like, a couple of days' work, or I can direct a documentary out of Timmins. Right. Well, I think I'll take the good gig. Sure. So I moved to Timmins to do this one dock, and then while I'm working on that, I met some people, and there was another dock, and then... A couple of days after that, met some other people, and they had money to do another dock. Right. So in Toronto, I'm, you know, I'm willing to stab people in the back to get an afternoon's work. Mm-hmm. And in Timmins, there's nothing but work. 
Right. So Timmins was my home base, but that was as far south as I worked. Mm-hmm. Everything was north of that. Wow. And so Timmins is a hard kind of a town. The winter surprised me. The first winter is like, oh my God. Sobering, eh? Well, it's 40 below for three weeks. Yeah. It's like I'd never thought of something like that. <laughs> uh, I like Timmins just fine. Made lots of friends. Yeah. And what I disc- and then I'd go out to Victoria because I always loved Victoria, mm-hmm. and I'd look for a job, and there'd be a waiter job, right? But no film job, and so I'd go back and you know be happy again in Timmins, and then I'd look, but there'd be no work wherever I looked. And what I came to realize is I like whatever town has work that I like. If I like the work, I'll like the town. Just I'll be happy in the town. So I found lots to do in Timmins. I took up motorcycle riding, skiing, played hockey like three nights a week all year round. <laughs> um, so I liked I liked Timmins, and I worked steady. Yeah, lots of, lots of work. The scuffling in Toronto to get work because the industry had it was so small. I don't know if you know this. Um, I just looked it up prior to coming to see you because I, I was just curious. The number of people working in Ontario. I don't know if you know the number. The current number. Yeah. Um. I want to say it was industry direct around 47,000. Yeah, 47, yeah. 48. Yeah. Which is staggering. Staggering. So there's so much work, but there was so not so much work you oh, know, before. Is, yeah, I mean, people don't understand. It, it, was, it was a fight to get work. So you were doing all this stuff and, and living very poor. So to, to have where the work was easy to get, Yeah, there was tons of work. So I liked Timmins. I did get some work. Uh, overseas, a bit of work in Hong Kong, a bit of work in um, not Malaysia, Singapore. Cool. And um, and then I was going back and forth and going over to Europe a little bit. Uh, so I got to know some people in Ireland and I got some few little things in there. But I couldn't get paid for it, mm-hmm. but what they would give me was the use of a car and a house. And then anyway, so I got this call and I thought, well, this would be kind of a dawdle to be a teacher and because I, I hadn't thought about that. Right. But when I got here, I realized, oh, you know, every good article I've ever read I tore it out of the magazine and kept it in a binder. Whenever somebody would tell me stuff that was really unique or interesting, I'd write it down. So I had all this. Yeah. I realized I must have been getting ready to be a teacher. And I had uh, teaching first year. And it was like, they call it, you know, the drink from a hydrant. And it was like, because they were still shooting with bolexes and cutting on steam bags. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll be honest with you, I hadn't seen that stuff in like 20 years. So I had to learn all that stuff again because I didn't remember, yeah. you know, how to use it. Or And I had this great class that was very patient with me. Mm-hmm. Very forgiving. Mm-hmm. Um, Good. Only one one woman in the class. That's changed. Yes. N- um, everybody was white. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, and and male. So yeah. But they were like it was a great class. I learned a lot, uh, and I really got into it. And then uh, Donald wanted to stay away a second year, so I taught a second year. That was actually the year I had uh, Trent Opalak. Oh, cool. And that was a spectacularly good class because there was a guy named. Oh God, just, his name just flew in my brain, but he's a wildlife cinematographer that's just won all kinds of awards, uh, a documentary on wolverines. Cool. Very skilled class. And then Donald came back, so then I was back. I kind of didn't want to, like, I liked it. You're right. I wanted yeah. to stay. Uh, fortunately, I had this really good job offer to do photography. Mm-hmm. So I had a, a gig to do photography for, it would take about six months, which is just a lot of travel. Mm-hmm. Me and a Nikon because I had a, a show of photography at uh, Harborfront in Toronto, if you know that place. Yeah. So I had a show there. And so that sort of got me some, some work. Awesome. It's a beautiful was, place now. I don't know what yeah. it was then, but it's gorgeous down there. Yeah. Pretty posh. Yeah. Very posh. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I got a photography job. But I'd, by that point, all my friends had moved away from Timmins. It just sort of changed. All my close friends had left. 
Tim is the economy went bad. Mm-hmm. There wasn't much work around. And so just nothing was fun there anymore. Right. And then uh, I got a job shooting something, getting a bit of footage for something on PBS uh, that took me up to a place called Piwanic, which I knew I had done some, some other projects up there. Mm-hmm. And while I was doing that, they, uh, I was asked if I wanted to uh, uh, start a high school. They, they said, well, how wow. do you feel about that? I said, well, I know what a high school is. <laughs> so I moved up in August and lived there for a year and a bit. Teaching high school was so much harder than teaching film students. How so? There's, there's, with good film students, there's an inherent kind of respect and consideration because they understand, well, you've been around the block, so you know some stuff. Right. And I want to know what you know. So there's just there's a respect and a, a kindness built in, which there is not with a, with a 14-year-old sure. male. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But I, I loved living in Piwanic. Uh, they gave me a house. I bought a skidoo, which they sent up by barge because a bunch of stuff came up by barge. I hunted. Uh, like I, I don't like killing stuff unless I'm going to eat it. Sure. But if I'm going to eat it, I, I'm okay with. Yeah. And I had good friends there, extremely good friends. And so I, I loved everything about it. And But while I was up there, comes around the spring. So breakup was a big thing, like the ice breaking up. And sure. It causes lots of consternation because you never know what's going to happen. The world could flood because it could be an ice dam. And, you know, any case, um, just before breakup, my dad, who lived near the Okanagan Valley, mm-hmm. uh, he died. And so to get out from Piwanic to go to the funeral. And then when I got back to Piwanic, eventually got back to Piwanic. Uh, they had a lot of ceremonies and stuff because I was kind of like, no, I'm okay. I just, you know, I'm I'm a little sad, but I'm fine. We had we had a wake, mm-hmm. we had a church service. Uh, he was a vet, so that the army came and the, all the old vets came and just walked along beside the casket with their hands on it. Uh, he became a Mormon, and they can like their choirs are pretty amazing. So uh-huh. the the music awesome. was great. We had a a wake for him. All the family gathered, and I kind of thought it was over the sorrow of it. And I knew he was, like, his health wasn't good. I really was sad that I'd missed one more visit. I always wished I'd had one more visit. Um, but I had gone up to Piwanic because I'd planned on going out for a visit, so I didn't get that one last visit. But when I got back to Piwanic, my good friends said, well, you've got to do this and you've got to do this because there's ceremonies, there's rich... And, and I didn't want to, I resisted. Actually, I, I appreciate that they stuck with me and made me do it. But I had to fast for... They wanted me to fast for a week, and I just... Three or four days was... And then I had to keep a fire going for three days, which is you're up at the edge of the tree line. Getting a, enough wood for a fire is a big job. Yeah. Uh, but people came and helped me do that. And then they brought a guy up who was doing stuff, and they got him to stay an extra day to have a sweat with me and somebody else who had lost a parent. Mm-hmm. And so I had to do the sweat. And all of that made me think, oh, I'm with some very good friends yeah. who are looking out for me, and they know what's good for me even more than I know what's good for me. Right. So I did all of those things, and um, I was going to go back and teach the second year. The only drawback was the workload was so ferocious. Like if to teach high school and students at all different levels, so getting stuff ready, I was doing like four hours of homework every night. Right. Hardly time to do anything. Yeah. And so the workload, teaching college, I worked hard, and I, I worked every Saturday that I ever worked here for 18 years. I was always in here for Saturday. Yeah. But that was nothing like teaching high school up north in terms of the work. Because there was no curriculum, no nothing. Right. So it was just the prep. And I was still kind of, I don't know, 
at loose ends a little bit because of losing my dad and, you know, a couple of other things were going on. But I got a call saying that there was, that one of the guys, Rory McVicker, who had worked in film, he was going to start teaching and broadcasting. And so did, was I interested in the job? And I went, you know, all of the getting classes ready wasn't nearly as in-depth. And I didn't have to do as many because if you've got students at three or four different levels, you've got three or four different things to prepare and each thing's got to be 15 minutes. So it's like, that's a lot of stuff. Absolutely. So anyway, yeah, coming to teach film felt like not the holiday, but it didn't feel, the work didn't feel as heavy. So you came back full time and that would have been 80? No, that would have been 90. Oh, yeah, that's right, Trenopolock, that's right, Trenopolock. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, 96, 97, okay. Yeah. So that that year was uh, Eric Weller. That, that oh, class. so your first year back was Eric's year. Correct. Oh, and that wow. class, I mean, that was a kind of a stunning class because there was about, there's about 15 people in that class all worked in film mm-hmm. from that. They were so easy to yeah. teach. So I went, wow, this is so easy compared <laughs> to, you right, know, right. high school. Yeah. Um, and the next year was great. And then, but eventually, if you teach long enough, you'll have a class that you don't click with, mm-hmm. that they don't much care for you, and they might want something different than you have to offer, mm-hmm. and they will do stuff that, so when you have a, a class that doesn't, and I had maybe two of those classes that just, just didn't, just wasn't a great fit. Mm-hmm. They weren't what I expected, and I probably wasn't what they expected. Right. But so two classes that I were difficult, mm-hmm. not as as much fun. Yeah. But other than that, I had actually quite a good time with the students. I was always kind of fascinated where they came from and what they had done before, and and then you know as they're telling you these things, almost imagining almost what what's going to unfold for their future. One hundred percent. Yeah. Um, and you say, oh well, you're this and that, or you or you like to travel, or you can speak this other language, and you just think, oh man, I'd give anything to be you go off on those <laughs> adventures, you know. Yeah, and I like the program. Uh, we made changes slowly, bit by bit, and then we made some more rapid changes. What were some of the changes that you oversaw? Getting the first couple of versions of Final Cut, mm-hmm. getting off of that linear editing. So we did we did an uh, offline linear edit, and then we go to this because we only had like three of these stations, these nonlinear stations, but they crashed every ten minutes. So yeah. it was an adventure. The film program. Previous to when you started, Eric would know this, but it was on the second floor and it had this crummy little room half the size of this room to store all of the equipment. And everything was broken down and 50 years old. And we would have to put in one year for capital expenses. I got six extension cords and that was how much money would go into the film program. Wow. And the equipment stuff is, you know, but... The students were good. The equipment was terrible. Sometimes I'd have to go out for an entire shoot because we were, just didn't have enough cameras, so we were using an old ACL that just ate film. Mm-hmm. But if you could load it and be really touchy with it, you might get three shots before it broke the film. <laughs> right. So I would go out with them just to help try and get through <laughs> To the reset, day. yeah. Such terrible worn-out equipment. Yeah. And bit by bit. And then the big thing was to expand the program. This one year, too many students had applied. We typically took 28 students a year. Mm-hmm. This one year, 52 students had applied and sent their money in. So oh, we had wow. to take them. So I worked all summer to get stuff ready. Yeah. Thinking this is going to be a disaster. Well, it wasn't a disaster. It was actually kind of good. It was a great class, mm-hmm. easy to teach, lots of talent. They worked great together. They had lots of fun together. Mm-hmm. So that class got through and went, whoa, whoa. And I went, wait a minute, I love that. Right. I loved it. The The right number for this course is not 28, it's maybe 50. Mm-hmm. So 
spent a couple of years trying to get that. We did. We tried having a class start at Christmas because the equipment didn't match up unless you know started a, a semester later. Right. And, and then that class was phenomenal. That was the the year that about ten of those guys have all gone off and done great great stuff. Yeah, that was and, the that was the point six the six point five year. And in my opinion, the best reel of films collectively like, yeah. all together that the college ever had. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that year. One of my all-time favorites is uh, Harriet Carlson's film. There's um, a parkour film that's on there. There's a film called The Red Door, which is like... Yeah, Scott Baker's film, yeah. That was so well shot for a Mm. student film. Yeah. Uh, Just a whole bunch of really good stuff. I liked having the students, but that was just too... It was too chaotic having, you know, starting all of that. So I approached the administration and said, look, I'd like to expand the program, take in... 48 or 50 students. Mm-hmm. And they said no. Oh, wow. Um, You'd think they'd say yes. They said, well, we'd have to hire another teacher. Yeah, of course you would. Yeah. Which kind of reflects on <laughs> you guys because we'd said, well, there needs to be four teachers. Right. We need four paid because we were three with 28 students. So if we're going to take 58, we need yeah. at least one more. And then uh, a dean came in and I said, look, we're trying to expand the program. I think it's a good idea. It makes us stronger. It makes us better. What students are we turning away who would be spectacular? Mm -hmm. We don't even know. Yeah. So we have to make it possible that they can come to school here. So he looked and he thought, hemmed and hawed, and I went back to the administration and said, look, would you reconsider your turning me down on the expansion? And they said, no, we're turning you down again. Wow. That's it. So I went back. This was how good the president of the college was in those days. Her name was Pat Lang, Mm -hmm. and she had great people around her as well. And I went, knocked on her door a couple months later and said, look, I know you've turned me down twice, but I just really think this is what we need to do because we're kind of stuck. We've got no space, no facilities, no busted down old equipment that's barely hanging on. Yeah. Uh, a rat's warren of little rooms upstairs that aren't connected. And we need to make the film program more substantial and more set up and more with its own space. And Pat Lang, to her credit, she said, okay, I'll reconsider this, but you better make it work. Right. So then the dean at that time, he started looking for money and then it got, because there was some money around and, and film got to be a thing because everybody was talking about film. Sure. And then we had those years of those great films yeah. and the year before and then more and more films. We were winning festivals because I knew if we could win festivals, yeah, we got it. they would pay attention to mm-hmm. us. So we were winning and they were spectacularly good films, Sirens yeah. of Baston and a whole bunch of just really, really cross town, mm-hmm. just great films. And then that's how we got the space. And what I hadn't anticipated was it was such a struggle and such a battle. You kind of want to be careful when you're, what wars you want to fight because they might be more difficult than you think. Uh, there was like, Donald was skeptical, but when he started to see the possibilities, hey, if we had a dedicated space that had a better, like a decent something reasonable yeah. for film equipment mm-hmm. and a set class and some other facilities and some better cameras and some better, and a room for posts that's not just like a cupboard in some hallway. Yeah. He started to see the possibility. So that took about two years. And then just just as we just sort of got things more or less in place, then that was your year. Right. But yeah. by then I was kind of, I was home fried in the brain because <laughs> it was such a, a struggle. But now the, all these struggles are yours. <laughs> oh, and, it's, and, I, and I honestly, I thank you for it. I mean, I we talked a lot. I remember... Uh, our year, we all got together, I think, four or five years ago and just sort of chatting online. And we always said, like, we don't know what the program was before, but we know Dennis was the heart. 
Whatever this was, you were the heart. I'm sure there was a skeleton before. And if that was James and that's Rory and they kept something alive, but what gave it life and let it grow to what it is today and the culture that came around that. We all attributed that to you. We figured that that was that's what you did, right? Well, that, that's, you're far too generous. <laughs> I, well, I don't think so, but, but it, it meant a lot. And I remember for our year, you showed us the green room, B118G, and the green screen and the, and the editing suites and everything. But the cage, I seem to remember being there the year before, but I could be wrong. It on could that. have been. What Donald DeLorme was really good at is we'd be doing stuff and he'd look at some space and then he would find some way to get that space. Yeah. So we added the equipment room was in a different place. It was right across from the office where, where photocopying is now. Okay. And then, and then they said, oh, well, we want to put photocopying in there. And we said, well, we just renovated this. But then Don said, and he showed me that room where the cage is now. Right. I went, oh, this is much better. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Great. They want to move us? Move us. By all means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. of course, of course. Yeah. Okay. So um, it was a collective of uh, Eric and Donald and me struggling with everything, making a thousand decisions and then trying to keep the program going. So we were fortunate that the classes were strong mm-hmm. because all, all that was going on like with the program did take a fair amount of time. We sure. went to lots of meetings and everything, but we had great students. And then, again, again Donald and Eric really took a lot of that responsibility. Donald made sure, because uh, it was a big jump to go from, you know, 28 students to 48, and just working things out. How the, what the design of, of the space is, now that was all of us together. So just little things, like in the front, there's a, Donald said, well, we've got to have sort of like a storefront in the front, which means you indent the window. Mm-hmm. And I went, oh, you're crazy. What the hell what are you talking about? Well, no, he was exactly right. And then we were looking at this hallway. So one one thing said, one argument was made to us, well, you should have 15 rooms along there, all tiny. And Because and I'd seen that, like, and I thought it was awful. Mm-hmm. It's like, how do you ever teach these guys? They're all right. in a closet. They don't see each other. There's no air in these closets. It's awful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't want anything like that. So then we debated, well, how wide should that hallway be? You know, some people said, well, it should be eight. Some people said it should be six. So we're back and forth on this, eight, six, eight, six. And then Donald said seven. (laughs) Yeah, perfect. So so just like there were so many decisions. And then we started, they also gave us money, not a ton of money, but money for equipment. And so everything had to be carefully thought out because we couldn't afford a mistake. Mm -hmm. And we made a couple little mistakes, but nothing that was you know, crippling. But if you, and, and that's still the case, like you have to kind of manage when you get some money or, or you have the technology fee of thinking, well, what do we need in the future year? And, and that's another thing, like when I said, you know, how, how great the new technology is, well, that's, that's the plus. Mm-hmm. The negative is it's out of date in like two years. It's so, very careful about what we're getting into. So the stuff gets obsoleted, and that's a problem, like, for young people going off to start their own business, too. It's like, you know, they you get a camera, and it's good, and then two years later, they say, oh, no, that's no good. Well, the digital camera that we were using when I graduated was the HVX200, the Panasonic, that shot on the P2 cards. And I bought one. Like, two months out of graduating, I bought one because I wanted to be a DOP. I want to learn how to be a cam operator. And, yeah, within within a year, 
Like it was just like, oh, this is done. We're done with this thing. I why, used to, why are, I still like the camera, mind yeah. you. An we, ideal scenario would be, and I always thought this going back because the cameras that we used to get, like the broadcast camera, mm-hmm. was a, called a beta. Yeah. And it wasn't even beta SP, which was, you know, a step up. It's just beta, which if you looked at that, footage now. And in those days, they had Satacon tubes, which you had to adjust for every shot. (laughs) And it weighed about 28 pounds. Right. Uh, And it was about three feet long. But it was so expensive that you could, like, it was half the price of a house. But I had always thought, if I could have gotten together with some people who were like me, sort of trained, so they wouldn't break it. Yeah. Because, like, there's a thing is, like, you can't afford it here, or you can't afford it when you're out of school, is breaking stuff. You need you need to teach traditional film technique so people have a soft hand because the new cameras like that, that camera I'd said that, yeah. that 180, man, that's all just plastic. Feather touch has never been you, more important. You need a soft touch with that camera. Yeah. And, a, and, and this idea of when you're doing something, you've got your eyes on it. And if, if somebody's working on the camera, leave that guy alone. Totally. We used to call that being in the bag. Mm-hmm. So if, if you were on a set and you saw a camera assist in the bag, don't even look at him. Yeah. And if you did, the DOP would come and rip a strip <laughs> off you because he's in the bag. If he makes a mistake, your whole day is garbage. And for anyone listening, I it's it's terrifying. So basically being in the bag means you're the one uh, feeding the magazines with the film, which I had to do and, of course, you had to do as well. It's a great feeling. Nothing feels cooler, but it's so scary because you make one small mistake. And, yeah, you're right. The day's ruined. Yeah. And, uh, and you're doing it. Basically blindfolded because your hands are inside a big giant black bag with the roll of film and the magazine, and you have to thread this thing perfectly without looking at it. It's not complicated. It's but not it's gotta complicated, be but it has to be perfect. And perfect you, to the frame. Yes. And you screw that up, you're yeah. done. And, it and is you don't so want to get scary. all sweaty in there either. No. Because sweat on be film doesn't, doesn't yeah. <laughs> But I had always thought oh if word. you could have... I'm getting shakes thinking about it. ...bought a camera together with somebody else working who was sort of like you. Because like any camera I had, I didn't need it 100% of the time. No. A typical month for me freelancing, I'd be away about 12 days out of a month would be a good month. Yeah. A little less than half the time. But I'd be actually shooting six, seven, maybe eight days a month, tops. Yeah. The other 25 days... The camera ain't being used. So I could, like one camera would have been enough for two of us or three even maybe. But the thing that makes sense to own is some cables, mm-hmm. some microphones. Yeah. You know, I had, I have, I've had microphones. Actually, I gave them to Sarah who works here. I've had microphones since I started and they still work fine. It, it comes down to the, and this is why, what you said before, I could never share with anyone else because I'm, I know I'm very particular about how I treat my electronics. My TV from when I was a kid, I still have, and it worked perfectly because I've always treated it well. All of my stuff is in perfect condition. And it's just when you're OCD, you got to do that, mm-hmm. right? But I could never give that camera to someone that I didn't 100% trust because if it came back yeah. to me, I've got to be sure that it's my baby. I, I agree with that completely. In fact, there's a couple of things that if you're a musician, there'll be a few people I'll offer my guitar, they can play my guitar. But if somebody just comes into my house and takes it, no, I don't care who you are. I've offered to let people ride my motorcycle, but don't come and sit on it unless I tell you to. (laughs) That's right. Um, And the same thing with a camera. But you can own the stuff that won't get obsoleted. Um, How you keep yourself in a camera and what camera should you get? Like, you know, where are you fitting yourself in? If you're doing productions, 
nowadays say in the $20,000 range, that's going to dictate what camera you use. So yeah. you can get a, four, a 4K that's going to be good, like plenty good enough. You kind of want to match the camera. You don't want too much camera, but you also don't want to, like if, it's, if you're going out as a one-man band, mm-hmm. which I did a lot of that, is the size was an issue as well. Yeah. But I also didn't want all my finances tied up in a camera so that if, if the coming off the plane up north, somebody threw my luggage onto the ground or I flew out of the back of the skidoo or something, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't survive that kind of loss. Yeah. So you got to, you know, your, your money and the size and the weight and the quality of the image and, and wh- how, what kind of camera can you run around and operate mm-hmm. so that it's second nature? Yeah. To be honest, too, if I had, if I was going to rent a, like a much better camera, something like the low-end Aerie or the, the high-end Black Magic, mm-hmm. something, yeah, I want the shooter to go with because they're better shooter. to be yeah, honest. Absolutely. you got to also know where, what your skill is and what, like, going off as a one-man band with a small budget making it look like something that's where I actually shine the best. If I was going to shoot something in Toronto, a commercial, no, I'd, I'd want the camera and the guy. Yeah. Because I, I, I know those people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but I want somebody who's better than me. So, yeah, you sort of got to know, yeah, what do you want to spend and how big and how heavy and, and where your talent is best used. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Those, are good, those are good advice. So we're, uh, we should probably wrap this up pretty soon. It's been amazing. We'll get you back every every <laughs> season. I want you back. Um, but I think if, I've said everything I know. <laughs> I'll get more out of you. But I, I just wanted to, I guess, ask, like, of, of, of all your time in this industry, I want to ask you two questions. What What's the greatest memory that you have from your time in the film journey? Not so much teaching, but just being a, being a film worker of, of, of a jack of all trades. What's, was there something that, that really stuck out? I produced a children's series and had a big budget and 20 people. And it was so little fun. Mm-hmm. So that was like a profound experience. It's like you sort of think bigger, bigger, bigger is better, 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 and it may not be. But I would say that the best, the thing that just pleased me to my very center was working here at the college, being a teacher with film students. That's awesome. Hearing from students when they're off doing stuff. Just recently I watched, I screened a film that uh, Damien Gilbert was one of the shooters on. Mm-hmm. And I just, I looked at it in just wonder because it was I've never seen something shot like that. Now, mind you, there was like not just Damien. There was a whole bunch of people worked on that. Sure. But Damien's footage is in there. Yeah. And it was all so good. Just so good. Yeah. Way better than anything I ever shot. And so all these people that went off and did much bigger, better, greater, I think, oh, that's so good. Yeah. I've been here long enough now that my first batch of students, and I'm with you, they were so patient with me. They were an amazing group. They're out doing phenomenal things now, like being keys and like cinematographers and like doing big stuff. It's so awesome. Yeah. It's so this, cool. This this program, because it was complex, because mm-hmm. it was good. Yeah. It was, and it's been around forever. It's gone through different lives. And just recently in the last year, you know, getting the studio and all the other stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's going through its new butterflies becoming a different butterfly than it used to yeah, be. Yeah, yeah. The quality of the students in this small little northern town in a short program, people coming from around the world, how they even found it. Yeah. And then all the young people that came from who knows where, how did they find it? And then to get from where you were, to move here, get settled in, find a place to live, get something to eat, find this place, adapt to meeting all these new students, these co-first-year students of 40-some-odd, 45, yeah. 48 students, 
this is like an absolute miracle. So there's a miracle happens here. Yeah. And then the people that like yourself and Eric and and everybody, Jennifer, everybody that's working in the program now feels this sense of participation, sense of even ownership. Yeah. Of this, because yeah, it has been handed over mm-hmm. to the next generation with no strings attached. But we hope it does well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm sure from everything I can see, I think it's doing great. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think I think that this is special. It may not have been for everybody that ever worked here. In fact, I'm sure it wasn't. Right. You know, when I first was, because Don Delorme, who was my professor, and I owe so much to. But when I, because I I took his job, which was really surreal, and to this day, it's still it's hard. You know, to say that I'm there because he was such a, he was larger than life to me. It's completely, yeah, I don't know how to say it. I don't know how to say it, but it's completely surreal. And when I, when he was mulling over retiring, because it took about six years for Don to yeah. go from, yeah. I think I might do this to like, yeah, I'm going to do it. So there's about six years where he was like, okay, Andrew, you, you interested? You might, you might want to put your hat in the ring. And the first year I actually considered it, I'd only been a client rep for a few years at that point at White's and I, I hadn't, you know, done much big stuff. And uh, yeah, you said I shouldn't. You said you got to make a movie first. Don't even consider this until you've made a movie. Two years after that, uh, Greg Jeffs at Lame F. White took me under his wing and, and helped support me to becoming a director again because it was, it was always what I wanted to do. I just didn't do it. I didn't feel like I was right for it. But you're absolutely right. It was just, I, I you know, I, I was, I had become settled in one avenue of this industry. And although I was really happy with what I was doing and doing well there, it wasn't connected to what's happening here. That's not transferable information. And so making all the films I did afterwards was huge. Well, in fact, I think a lot of it is transferable to here. I think contextually, by being a filmmaker, that's that's how I was able to bridge it. But you were in a position that a lot of filmmakers came through the door and you helped them get from A to B to C. Yeah. That's the same process, where you're finding a technical solution for a creative problem. Right. That's the same. Right. Um, I guess you're right. When you're meeting a hundred and one different people all day long, yeah. and you've got to be a hundred and one different ways to because you need to suit them. Yeah, you can't just be how you are. You got to, you know, yeah, how adapt. they are. Yeah, um, that's that's good. Yeah, you have to give if somebody wants to, a certain thing. You have to say, well, instead of using that, what if you use this? And then you have to show that you have to yeah. explain what the efficacy of that decision is. Mm-hmm. That's that translates to here. So you're right. You're right. <laughs> no, that's it. That's exactly what it was, right? And the best accomplishments were, were were when I was able to deliver under budget. You know, if I could if I could make that DOP look good, not just technically but financially, then that was always kind of neat. But with uh, conflicts too, it's yours for a certain amount of time, and there's no guarantee that there'll be a film program. Yeah. You're right. If there's students coming, probably it's okay. Yeah. But if your numbers start to go down, anybody that would ignore declining numbers of enrollment, I think, is willfully not seeing the writing on the wall. Luckily, we've been very healthy, but you're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. But if it changed, and like how many more things can you add? I added did this one time with Eric because he was saying he needed to do this and this. And I could tell he was getting almost frantic with this list. Right. And I made up, I found this list of 15 or 16 things that was going on mm-hmm. between film night and the website on and on and on and on and on. Yeah. And that's got nothing to do with teaching your class or prep for the class or dealing with student issues yeah. or dealing with college issues. Yeah. Um, these are just extra things, electives, to make the program <laughs> yeah. stronger. Yes. 
Um, so if you begin to feel frantic, or it's not surprising. It's yeah. kind of a, because it's such a, a good thing. This has been around for 50 years. And you think of all the people, your classmates, whether they stayed in film or didn't, still good people. And everything Absolutely. they learned here and did here. Roy McVicker said this to me one time, if you can make a film, you can do anything. And that's true. Yeah. Absolutely, because it demands so much of you, and not just in one area. Yeah. Dennis, uh, I, I am eternally thankful for what you did for this program, as, as well as what you've done for me personally, in class and in life. And I'm pretty sure everyone who had you can say the same thing. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. And thank you for being here. This was really fun. It's good to uh, chat. For everyone listening, thank you so much. Join us again on our next episode of Conflicts, the podcast. Dennis Austin, you're a king. Thank you. 